The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 81 is, what is the nature of the unconscious? And we read the first chapter of Carl Jung's Man and His Symbols, published in 1964. You can join the discussion, get the texts, and read numinous amounts of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Wes Allwan, sensing and judging in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, thinking, introverted, sensory, intuitive from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin blowing up the introverted-extroverted distinction in Austin, Texas. Oh, man. Got to be outside the box. I don't believe in that distinction, man. I'm imprisoned in a uh, conceptual scheme in a way that Jung would object to, and yet it's Jung's own conceptual scheme. I am simply holding two opposing ideas in my mind simultaneously and continuing to function, which is a sign of my true intelligence. Man and His Symbols was the last thing that he wrote in 1961 before he died. And he was approached after he'd done this interview that went well. The guy who interviewed him was approached by a book publisher to then approach Jung, asking him to write a book that would actually explain his system to the layman because all of his work had been directed at other psychoanalysts and things like that. And initially he said no, but then he had a dream and he listens to his (laughs) dreams that he should uh, write this thing. So he he did, but however, he had some stipulations that it would be a cooperative work. So there are like four other Jungian analysts that did sections of the book and he just would write the intro and be the overall editor. So he picked these other people to write the meat of it, but he wrote this introductory essay, Approaching the Unconscious. And the guy, uh, John Freeman, who wrote the introduction here, who was the journalist that initially was approached about this and kind of convinced him to do it, apart from the dream. Convinced the dream to happen. Convinced his subconscious to give him the dream. (laughs) He was chosen by Jung that he had to be a consultant throughout the project for all the sections, pretty much to be an everyman, to read it over. And if he saw something that he didn't understand, he would have to make the author rewrite it. And it's not clear from the introduction whether that was applied to Jung himself or just to these other guys who helped. But it sure seems like... This text goes out of its way, to be clear. Don't you wish that, you know, Heidegger had done that, if that Lacan had done that, that somebody, like, I will write one thing that you will actually understand, and I will have somebody tell me, sentence by sentence, whether it is understandable. I don't get the sense, though, that this was uh, heavily edited. It's kind <laughs> of a rambling and repetitive piece yeah. of writing. And it's clearly, it is for a public audience. I mean, clearly, he's trying to, he's not getting into technicalities, and so, you know, that's why one of the things they did in the precog was to give an outline of Freud's theory of dreams and the unconscious, because even though he's responding to that, he really doesn't outline that in, in detail, which is unfortunate. So I think it's hard to understand his preoccupations with archetypes, and it's helpful to know Freud, but he doesn't help you get the gist of that. 
What did you think, Seth? Was this a dumbed-down introduction, and you wish we had read something real by him, or was this a wonderful introduction? This was actually recommended as the thing to start by. I, I threw it out on Facebook to our listeners, and this was no. I actually think it was a good reading. If, like Wes said, you know, you put it on the stove and boil it down a little bit to get to some of the key points, it's not an argument. So what I came away with was him saying, "Here are a few key points. We have to take dreams as a fact." and treat them like a phenomenon to be studied, et cetera, et cetera. But it falls back on him making his own claim to authority, which is to say his practice for the last 30 years or 40 years or whatever it was. So I wondered if there was another work somewhere that somebody actually did the empirical work to try to cash out by looking at hundreds and hundreds of dream analyses, what the archetypes are, what the recurring themes are, specific documented examples of where people who couldn't possibly have had knowledge of X, Y, and Z had dreams experiencing X, Y, and Z, that sort of thing. But it was provocative. There's some reference in here to Jung having collected something like 80,000 dream reports. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. The appeal to authority is just, this is what I found in my clinical practice. And I can give you some specific examples. So he does give the one that he goes into quite at length about a young girl. She was 10, 12 years old, and she had a series of dreams that she drew that had all these crazy-ass creation of the world revelations kind of stuff in it that he says there's no way that she would have been taught this stuff. She was not of the religion or religiously trained so as to get these things. But these are just natural things that people dream about, particularly when they're about to die because... Within a year, she was dead of an infection. And so somehow her body knew that she was going to get that infection. It was edging that way, and it was trying to let her know by giving her all this apocalyptic stuff. So that's the kind of thing that passes for an argument here, which is certainly interesting. And I think in the rest of this book, the other writers here give a lot of uh, other examples there. And he's written many other books, just like Freud did, where he talks about his individual case studies. I don't know that I would find those personally as interesting as just this overview of the concepts involved, because what I liked about this was that it gives his version of a picture of the mind, and it contrasts in some important and practical ways with uh, many of the philosophers we've read. It might be that the things that I really like about it, he has in common with Freud. The practical upshot, it almost sounds like Montaigne's skepticism that we read quite a while ago, where he, you might think that you've got everything figured out, that you can use your faculty of reason and be master of the universe, master of yourself. But come on, you're fooling yourself. The unconscious is still the vast majority of what is going on in your mind is stuff that you don't even know about. And if you look at your own behavior, aren't controlling. And if you actually step back and look at your behavior, you'll see that for every well-thought-out plan that you execute, there are also superstitions and quirks and other things that you can't explain where they came from and that would strike you as irrational. And that's just the human condition. So you have to do a study and engage in therapy or something to, I don't know, at times he talks about this goal of making more of the unconscious conscious, right? Actually gaining control of your emotions, gaining control of these things. But in other places, it sounds like he thinks that that is hopeless that the best you can do is achieve some sort of balance between them. That if you are pulling too hard in one direction, then you are inevitably repressing other things that are really right there in your personality. So if you sort of define yourself, giving the example, you know, too rigidly as I'm a person who's very reasonable and I have everything figured out, then the part of you that is in fact not like that will cause all sorts of psychological problems. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. It's only really teased in the essay. Well, you started out, Wes, saying that the question here was about dreams. Yeah. 
right? He thinks that the dreams are our unconscious talking to us, or is it always that? What do you mean, is it always that? Right, so he contrasts his view with Freud's, who thought, according to his characterization, that dreams are the things we've repressed sometimes, you know, so it can be our unconscious more or less talking to us, although that involves a notion of agency that we should try to flesh out a little bit. But then also it can be just the refuse of the day. It can be psychic trash, basically. And in fact, he credits Freud with discovering archetypes, with discovering that there are things that are in the unconscious that come out through dreams that are of things that you as an individual have not experienced, but that he thinks belong to something like species memory, which is what Jung is going to call the collected unconscious. But Freud just called those archaic remnants and thought that they were really not of any psychological interest because the point of doing therapy and looking at your dreams would be to figure out what you personally are repressing to figure you out, not to figure out something general about the species. That's actually unclear to me how important Freud thought the archaic remnants were. But I, I mean, obviously, Jung thought that Freud didn't think they were important. And yeah, so, you know, for Freud's, the first step is that dreams are symbolic. They're symbolic because the association, and I think this is an interesting connection, you know, because association is important to Hume and ultimately Kant becomes his sort of categories to the mind's structuring of the world. It's just that usually it's bounded in very tight ways. But it can free up. And it's obviously very free during dreams where one image sort of slides into the next and there's all sorts of contradictions and bizarre things happening that we would question in real life that we don't pay that much attention to while dreaming. So the symbolism comes in because our sort of emotional attachments to one image can easily get shifted onto another associated image. So one thing can come to stand in for another. Mm -hmm. And for people who are skeptical about this, even in literature, I mean, the way great literature is written, it's not like an artist consciously sets out to be symbolic. That usually makes it kind of ham-fisted and screws things up. Rich symbolism comes when an artist lets go and just lets those connections happen more or less unconsciously. So Orwell just wanted to write about animals. And it just happened that animals <laughs> are. A parable is a whole different can of worms. You can get away with that in a parable because you sort of frame it as a children's story. You frame it as something quasi-mythological. And when you look at myths and fairy tales and parables, the characters are flatter. It's not about the depth of character. Normally, we criticize literature for the sorts of things that you do there. But actually, the depth is spread out among the characters in a fairy tale or a parable. Anyway, so I think it's a different case. But in most works of literature, we expect a more subtle kind of symbolism and that, that the author isn't forcing on to the story. So the thing that Freud and Jung agree on is that dreams are symbolic. But Freud really... He went farther than that. So, for instance, I gave the example of a my father being associated with a bear or, you know, I could have any sorts of association like that. And so he might show up in the dream as a bear and I might have a certain sort of similar emotional reaction to the bear in the dream. There may be sort of isomorphisms between my relationship to this animal in the dream and my relationship to my actual father. But for Freud, that sort of symbolism is really just scratching the surface. Freud thought dreams are really dominated by unconscious impulses that the dream is sort of giving partial expression to, but there's enough censorship to distort the dream and prevent us from becoming conscious of the impulses. So it's not enough to say, I have a conscious fear of my father, and that gets expressed in the conscious fear of the bear. For Freud, again, that's just the surface level, and we would have to go deeper and figure out what are the unconscious repressed impulses and how are those shaping the dream. 
And for Freud, this easier sort of symbolism, again, was not really the key to the dream. And I think Jung is trying to backtrack on that and say, actually, we ought to pay attention to the manifest, obvious symbolism of dreams, and it is important. And I think Jung has a very good point there. When I think about dreams, I think there's a lot of richness just to some of the overt symbolism in dreams before you try and use a Freudian method to see if there's something repressed driving the dream. I think Jung is right about that. Hmm. Was the bear Fozzie Bear in your case? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually not a, not a real association. Uh, I could give a longer no. example of a dream analysis. Of... Should we just talk about one of your dreams for the rest of the... Uh... No, not one of my dreams, but <laughs> ah. someone else came to me with a dream and challenged me. They'd actually listened to our Freud episode, and then I had lunch with them, and they were very skeptical about the idea that there's anything symbolic about dreams. But then they had come to me with a dream, and they like challenged me, interpret this. And actually, the interpretation was fairly obvious. And she had been basically talking about that dream through a whole previous conversation at lunch without knowing it. She had been talking about the same sort of preoccupation that showed up in the dream. And why wouldn't we expect those preoccupations to show up in the dream in some sort of jumbled up form? Well, let's talk about what it is that is making the dream that Jung wants to distinguish himself from Freud, that he says for Freud, things are so jumbled in dreams because of the repression that's going on, because, you know, it's a forbidden desire maybe an incestuous desire or something, the unconscious, even in your dream, it doesn't want to just say that. So it screws things up. Is that an accurate? The dreams are jumbled up and distorted for two reasons. And Freud understands this. And so does Jung. One is just that we're not receiving external stimuli, our ability to reason and reality test and to say, oh, King Kong's walking through my neighborhood. That doesn't make any sense. That kind of ability is dampened. So that's one level. The other part of the distortion is Freud's idea that dreams are trying to conceal our repressed impulses, conceal and express them at the same time. That's what makes it confusing. Give partial symbolic expression to them and yet distort them enough that we have to lay down on a couch and free associate and have a psychoanalyst help us figure out the actual meaning of the dream. So those are the two sources of distortion. And I think Jung wants to say, well, actually, just the mere fact that when we're asleep, that association is at work, that that's actually enough. And there's something significant there. And that's so, he, again, he's lessening the importance of the part of repression in molding and shaping dreams. Hmm. I'd like to just dumb this down for just one second, because reading this, I didn't obviously have it, this context, Wes, that you're bringing to it. And I want to kind of go back to something I said earlier, which is Jung's making a very strong and interesting point here to me, which is he's saying dreams are a phenomenon. They are a fact of our existence, and they should be studied. And he said, Freud recognized this, that it'd been neglected, that it's an essential part of human experience. And Freud's analysis of what the function of dreams was, is to get at repressed memories or get at these repressed symptoms, neuroses, I'm not sure. And what Jung says is, the fact that you can get at those same repressed things through free association while you're awake suggests that dreams do something more than just give access to those repressed memories or that repressed experience. And so he says, I want to know what other function dreams might have, what other work they might be doing as part of the human experience. And I think without passing judgment on or not knowing about how free association works in this context or whatever, 
I think both of those are very compelling points, even at face value, namely that dreams are something that need to be studied and are an important part of the human experience that typically not addressed or wasn't until psychoanalysis developed into a field. And then the second, that the function that Freud uses for dreams or the role that he ascribes to them, if it's true that it can be achieved in other manners, doesn't necessarily imply that dreams have another function or a richer function, right? Just because you can do it multiple ways doesn't necessarily mean that there's more going on in dreams, but that it's a legitimate question to ask. Freud thought the function of the dreams was actually to conceal our impulses from us. And even though it's a window into the unconscious and they give partial expression, the dreams come about because of that distorting aspect. They sort of push association into overdrive because association is how we distort and conceal. So if I had a forbidden impulse, say, sleeping with my neighbors or my my good friend's wife, I don't just dream about that. I dream about a distorted version of that dreaming about some other woman who sort of stands in for my friend's wife. A patient can come in, you could go into an analytic session, and you don't just have them tell you dreams. They free associate about everything. They talk about their fantasies, they talk about their day, and often they're not going to talk about their dreams. And Freud spent a lot of time with people on the couch who weren't talking about their dreams. So the idea that, that you can free associate to anything, I think you're right. Jung makes a big deal of that. That's not really an innovation on Freud. I'm looking at 63 to 64. He asks, why, when asked, could not the dream be open and direct and say what it had to say without ambiguity? This is following up on him saying that the dreams are the unconscious trying to tell us something. And then he talks about Freud's view a little bit that there's a sensor and the sensor protects your sleep against the shock of a disagreeable reminiscence mm-hmm. that these, if you, if you really was disturbed, it revealed your repressed things, then you would wake up. Jung says, but I'm skeptical about the theory that the dream is a garden of sleep. Dreams just as often disturb sleep. It rather looks as if the approach to consciousness has a blotting out effect upon the subliminal contents of the psyche. Earlier, he said one of the things he characterizes the unconscious is there are a lot of things that we notice that we don't know that we notice. I'm not sure how much this has just been debunked. (laughs) I'm not sure how commonly accepted it was, but I thought for the most part, the idea that you could have like subliminal advertising, that that has been shown just to be bullshit, that that if you flash buy Fritos in the middle of the movie for two frames. Like the fact is that your sensory apparatus is not on any level going to get that. Is that correct? As far as we know, I think it doesn't work as an advertising technique, but I think, I mean, cognitive scientists do lots of subliminal experiments these days and show that. But the other thing is you don't need to buy into subliminal advertising though to get this point, because it's about the fact that our mind can only focus on one thing at a time. And so for, yeah. I could focus my attention on the way the the chair feels against my leg. And a moment ago, I wasn't conscious of that, but it wasn't exactly as if the experience wasn't there. So it was a, what Freud would call a pre-conscious or what Jung would call a subliminal experience. And then I can become conscious of it, fully conscious of it by giving my attention to it. Right. I still think Jung overestimates how much of that is retained that from what I remember from my psych classes in college, it was that unless you focus on it, you're certainly not going to remember it. It could be that you have a sense of what the chair feels like on your ass right now. But unless you're focusing it on, you know, you're not going to retain that unless somebody asks you. If somebody asks you after the fact, you probably won't, you know, you'll, you'll kind of figure out <laughs> by looking what it feels like now, but you won't have actually retained that. Ironically, yeah, I mean, that retention is actually related to dreaming. I mean, the 
So there's something called memory consolidation. Well, yeah. So Jung thought that you retain a lot of this stuff, but that it is retained in a way that is different than the conscious mind would organize things. And so the whole reason that dreams are so random seeming and filled with associations in the way that you were describing is just because that's how things are actually stored. And sort of if your mind is just going over contents, here it makes it sound like there's not an agent. Some places it sounds like he wants to say the subconscious is an agent, that the fact that we have a subconscious means that we are all divided selves. And then you could look at dissociative identity disorder as being an extreme version where you have many divided selves. But as far as dreams are concerned, if you say the dream is the unconscious is trying to tell you something, that sounds like there's another personality back there. That is the whole, sometimes he talks about the self as being the ego plus the unconscious, the whole you. And that's really what you're trying to work on as opposed to what you consider yourself, which is just the ego, which is just has to do with the conscious mind, which is a socially constructed and very small piece of the whole self. But here it sounds more like Lacan's account of the unconscious in which, remember for Lacan, it was pretty much just strings of symbols. There's no agent there sort of doing anything. There's some motive force. There's still some life in the organism that is you. Well, there's, there's no agency for any of them. I, I don't really, think you don't, Okay. This is the section that at least was clearest to me. Right. He says uh, in 64, this is why dreams seem to skip the various points that are most important to the conscious mind and seem rather to manifest the fringe of consciousness, like the faint gleam of stars during a total eclipse of the sun. A dream cannot produce a definite thought. If it begins to do so, it ceases to be a dream because it crosses the threshold of consciousness. Right. So what he's getting at there is just the disordered, kind of distorted way that dreams present themselves is largely due to those first factors of, you know, again, the suspension of reality testing and external stimuli and we're unable to focus when we're dreaming in the same way. And so that, of course, things are fuzzier. So he's trying to privilege those things again, as opposed to the Freudian idea that repressed impulse, the censorship is the driving force, right? He wants to say, well, actually, you don't need censorship for dreams to be distorted. The distortion just comes in because the mind is in a nebulous state when we're dreaming. I'm kind of getting a little lost already. Well, we're focusing on the specific, what is going on, what makes dreams as fucked up as they are. And one of the things that came out of that for me is something that I feel like was a, a systematic, I don't know if it's an ambiguity, but it's something I had to figure out going through this was, does Jung believe in agency at all, really? And I think that Jung is closer to, even though he talks about the self in a variety of ways, right, both as our conscious self and that we could have multiple selves if we have dissociated identity disorder. And also just, you know, he says you could just be caught by a bad mood, you could be uh, suddenly very unreasonable. You could put on different personalities in different roles in your life, your work versus outside of work. And he sort of sloppily, I think, refers to all those different things as if those are different selves. Whereas I right. think it makes more sense to me to take the line of Sartre or Doug Hofstetter or many others who say all this points that the Cartesian notion of self, the cogito, is just kind of bullshit. It's a social construction. Jung does want to insist that there's teleology throughout. So you are alive. You are a collection of living systems. And some of these systems we'll call mental systems. You know, there's also, of course, the kidney functioning in such a way that you could talk about the mind of the kidney, the thing that moves the kidney. You could use that as metaphorical language. But I think that Jung is going to think it's not that much more metaphorical to talk about an agent behind even your conscious thoughts. You know, what pops into your conscious mind is not something that you cause to pop into your consciousness. It just, there's so much about our minds that we don't have control over it. We overestimate the amount of control. Yes. 
So there's this, the feeling of agency. Sure. That's undeniable. Well, but whether there's actual agency, if you want to follow that route and say that there is actual agency in your conscious life, then you would then go ahead like he does some places in here and extend that and say, oh, well, I guess there are sort of multiple other agents within me that together make up my whole self. I don't know that we're going to answer that question based on this text, but he takes a stab at giving an account of that when he talks about, in evolutionary terms, the kind of rational conscious part of the brain evolving more recently in that these ur drives and the things that inform dreams come from kind of the older amygdala reptilian brain, which he suggests in quote-unquote primitive cultures and earlier civilizations we were more aware of and accepting of that the rational brain hadn't quite crowded it out to the point where it had to express itself through the unconscious and dreaming. So he hints at a sort of quasi-biological account to answer your question, I think. This question of multiple agents, he talks about on page five and six. So he's citing a common criticism of the unconscious, of people who say they argue naively that such an assumption implies the existence of two subjects, or to put it in a common phrase, two personalities within the same individual. But this is exactly what it does imply quite correctly. And then he goes on to say that many modern people suffer from a divided personality. But to say two personalities is not to say two agents. And I think the whole question of agency and free will is, you know, we don't need the unconscious to have a free will problem. We need merely to think about determinative factors on behavior, whether that's the unconscious or something else, it doesn't matter. So the free will problem is sort of more abstract. You don't think it's made worse and more vivid, the fact that we, as a matter of fact, don't even feel like we have control or even if we sometimes feel like we have control, then if we sort of look more closely at our behavior and like, well, why did you do that? Then we figure, huh, well, I can't actually explain why I did that on the basis of my rational choices. The free will problem would frame it in terms of someone says, yes, I'm reasoning my way to a choice about what I'm going to do in the future. And someone says, no, you're just bound. You're like a billiard ball being bounced around the table and you're bound by external factors, stimuli, your own impulses, all those causal factors coming together and force you to make the kind of decision that you make. And then of course, there are some people who think, well, actually both those things can be true. We can save a conception of free will that allows for determinism because scientifically, you know, it's really hard to break free of some sort of determinism for human beings. We're mechanisms. Mm -hmm. We're at some level machines and operating in the way that, that we're structured and determined to do. So you throw in the unconscious and you add a new wrinkle to the extent that you say the old debate might have been someone saying, well, you're just at the whim of your impulses, even if you think you're being reasonable. And the unconscious, the idea is that, well, even when you think you're following your own impulses, you may actually not be. You may be in a conflicted state. You may be following someone else's impulses, or you may be doing something that you may have an unconscious impulse that conflicts with your conscious impulse and so on. So so what I'm trying to say there is that it adds an interesting layer to the many ways in which one can challenge free will. From a philosophical perspective, I don't think it brings on anything unique to that problem, which plays out at a more abstract level. Do you see what I'm saying? I felt like I should stress that just because I think that's one of the things Jung stresses that, again, like Montaigne, he wants to knock us down a peg. 
from our embrace of reason. Yeah, he's not knocked in any sort of corner on the philosophical problem of free will. The reason you'd want to be a compatibilist is so you could acknowledge that, yes, we're determined overall, but there's still a difference in the way, say, we're going to apply the law or apply you know, whether I'm going to feel guilty about something between if you did something and you were on drugs or you did something and you felt that you had were clear of mind. And so this adds another wrinkle to that sort of consideration. Within a completely compatibilist framework, fine. You could still say that part of the time you thought you felt free when you looked at it more closely during therapy, you found that you were not. But I don't want to spend any more time on this because these things are not unique to Jung. This is the con. This is Freud. This is anybody who wants to talk about the unconscious. The reason I brought it up was just because I'm trying to figure out a way to talk about this sort of multiple selves. I mean, if it's not multiple agents, because that says something about free will and morality, you know, nobody thinks just because you get in a bad mood and you become sort of like a different person to somebody talking to you, that doesn't mean that you're not morally responsible. (laughs) You know, it seems like at least if there's a chain of memory between the two selves and you're not an actual dissociated identity disorder person, then there's something metaphorical he wants to claim that there are different, I would say, teleological systems. These different personalities, these different even roles that we put on really are in some sense different selves. If we want to say beyond that, that there are different agents, different cogitos or something, then we're exceeding the empirical data. Well, all we have is this talk of two personalities and the idea of man being divided. And the point there is that he's getting at our lack of awareness of our emotions are sort of the division from ourself and our lack of ability to respond numinously to symbols. We're over-rational and we're, I don't want to use the word repress because I think he uses this word discard and he's criticizing Freud on personal repression, but we've lost touch with our primitive selves, a more authentic and immediate relationship to nature and to each other and so on and so forth. You could call this, as he does, you know, a divided personality or two personalities existing within one person. One is sort of kept in a dungeon and not allowed to come out, but sort of pesters us. And that's where we get symptoms and neuroses and things like that. Well, in the end, he actually makes the transition to talking about society in the same way, which stresses to me more that he actually thinks that these different personalities really, in some sense, could be called agents. If it's really such a close uh, analogy to talk about the fact that the first world, the dominant, the West, is in a similar way to how man represses these ancient things, how we are denying really the agency, the values. We're not taking proper into account the rest of the world. And he refers to the Soviet Union at the time as sort of being our seedy underbelly that I'm not exactly, he doesn't go into depth of what his specific critique of the Soviet Union is, but I guess the idea is that there's a lot of corruption and things going on there and repression. And that in the same way that a all too moral person might sort of deny that he has evil impulses and say, oh, those criminals, in other words, like, I should have the right to have a gun or whatever because I'm trustworthy, but those criminals are a completely different species of person, pretty much. They have something wrong with their brains. Like, that would be the kind of thing that Jung would want you to wake up and see within yourself that all the savagery that afflicts somebody that just killed his wife, that that's actually in there, too, that just it hasn't gained control yet. And similarly, you could talk about, he makes this analogy then to whole uh, peoples and whether it's suppressing or ignoring other countries, or I think a more obvious analogy would be sort of the underclass of your own society, that if you have a society that's, we'll just focus on those bright individuals who have enough money and resources and the right background or whatever it is, basically an oligarchy of some sort, 
and everybody else, screw them, let them eat their breadcrumbs and make do the as well as you can if there's something screwed up in very much the same way that a person could be self-repressive. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.